You're listening to Hebrews Jesus is Better series, preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. This morning we will once again be in Hebrews chapter 10, and since we missed last week together, at least in this portion of scripture, let me just quickly review on where we're at to get our our grounding and our moorings this morning. Let me read for you chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. Again, we've been going through the argument of the high priestlyhood of Jesus Christ and the new covenant that he has instituted. And in speaking in that, the writer says in verse 17, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. We need to catch that this morning. What he's saying is, in light of this new covenant, there are no more offerings of sin. Why? Because of Jesus Christ and the new covenant, the way has been made clear. We have access now into the very presence of God. The curtain has been torn in two, and we have the certainty of a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. There is no need of offering for sin. Not in the old covenant, not in a a standard of works or religion or your own reasoning. Now, because of what Christ has done by instituting this new covenant, shedding his own blood for our sins, there is no need for offering for sin. Jesus Christ has completely fulfilled that. And so, my friend this morning, stop trying any other avenue. It is Christ and Christ alone. There is no other offering. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other religion that can save. It is through Jesus. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And now, the writer continues, in light of that truth and understanding, and in gratitude, he says, let us do some things. And what he's doing now is taking the doctrine that he's taught us and showing us our duty. Let us then practice faith, hope, and love. We talked about this extensively two weeks ago. We won't continue uh, to give it any more time other than this. Uh, I think it was last week or so, Judy Cameron, who had been listening to the message and, and and the conversation of faith, hope, and love, came in and she said, hey, just by the way, um, you just talked about faith, hope, and love. I hope that you know that chapter 11 is a chapter of faith, chapter 12 is a chapter of hope, and chapter 13 is a chapter of love. And I always enjoy it when our people give an outline for me for the rest of the series. So thank you, Judy. She's exactly right, and we'll see that shortly. So he tells us this is the doctrine, this is the duty, here's what we're to do. Now there's something very interesting that happens now in verse number 25. He's encouraging us to consider one another, to think upon one another in this body of believers, to provoke to love and to good works. And then he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting and encouraging one another, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. And and we we talked a little bit about this, but when we say, as we say the day, day approaching, in our minds as believers, We are thinking of our blessed hope, the day when Jesus will come and we will be vindicated. All things will be made right. But now listen to me. 
when we say that day or the day approaching or our blessed hope, we must also understand this morning that our blessed hope of vindication is horrible for others. Because that day is not glorious for them. That is a day of judgment. And so the writer says, we need to be provoking and encouraging so much the more as we see that day approaching, and we understand that. But he's going to use this idea of judgment now as a springboard as we move into the fourth warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Look with me, if you would, at verses 26 and 27. For if we, again the writer, is putting himself in this category. We'll see the importance of that again, I think, at the end of this chapter. And we've seen it, I believe, already in chapter 6. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice of sin. That should ring a bell. We just read that in verses 17 and 18. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He, again, now reminds us that if we continue to go on sinfully and deliberately, there is no more sacrifice for sin. And what he's saying here is, just as in verses 17 and 18, for the soul of men and women, there is no other place to go except to Jesus Christ. Without Christ this morning, there is no hope. And so, as we come to these passages again of warning, I thoroughly believe these passages are for a purpose. They are written to believers. They're legitimate passages. And again, as we explained in in chapter 6, that these warning passages should prod us to endure and remind us as believers That without Jesus Christ, judgment awaits. And he says it is fiery indignation which devours and consumes. Now this morning, I want to make sure that we pay attention to the language. And the language of this passage, in all honesty, is uncomfortable when we hear what's being said. Look at verses 28 and 29. This is the argument from... Lesser to greater. You say, if, if this happens in this situation, which is less, how worse will it be if this other thing, which is greater, happens? So listen to what he says in verse 28. For he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Again, the comparison of the old covenant. Quit going there. It was a covenant of death. There was no life. The conscience could never be cleared or cleansed there. And he reminds us that under this old covenant, when you disobeyed, you died. There were sins that were high-handed sins that there was no sacrifice for. It was a covenant of death when we think about it. Obey, live, disobey, die. And if you think about that, it's tragic. Now watch what he says. Verse 29. Of how much sore punishment... How much worse, suppose you, shall be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. He says, if you think it's terrifying 
that under the law, someone breaking that law would die physically. How much worse would it be for those who trample underfoot Jesus Christ, who profane the blood, his blood of the new covenant, and who bring outrage to the gracious spirit of God? Look at verse number 30. For we know him. And now he's talking about, for believers, we know him, the God of heaven, the holy, righteous judge of the earth. That he hath said, vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. He takes this quote now from Deuteronomy chapter 32, and this quote comes from verses 35 through 36. Um, and it's interesting here. He begins this song of Moses that, that Moses has been singing to the people about what happens when people disregard the God of heaven and spurn his commandments. He says of them that their foot shall slide in due time, that those who reject God in the Old Testament their foot would slide, they would be destroyed, and not knowing when it was coming. He goes on to say that false gods in that passage cannot save. And we might say this morning, well, of course, false gods, wood, stone, whatever, Old Testament, so long ago. But I submit to you, in our culture, we have false gods that cannot save. Gods of prosperity, of wealth, of health, of science, and and. God reminds us that those who turn from him, your gods will not save you. He goes on to say that no device can deliver you out of my hands. When a human being decides to reject the God of heaven, when judgment falls, and it will, there is nothing that can deliver. His sword and his arrow, arrows um, will devour. That's the entire passage. And this is what the writer of Hebrews brings to light for us Describing the judgment of God. It's interesting to note that this is the same passage that Jonathan Edwards uh, preached, I think it was 1741, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He used this very text because Edwards understood the wrath and the terror of a holy, righteous God in light of sinful men and women who have rebelled. Let me just read a couple lines from the sermon. Edward said, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to rend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution and your care of prudence and your best contrivance, and all of your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Get that picture? We are on a free fall, and we are heavy, and there's nothing to stop the plunge into hell. He goes on. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, they would immediately burst forth upon you. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice directs the bow to your heart and strains at the bow 
and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Edwards read that message. It was monotone. And yet people wept and trembled as they heard of the wrath of a holy God against sin. Is it any wonder now we go to verse 31 in our text and the writer says in light of all this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now listen to me, church. We must quit apologizing for what the church has believed for 2,000 years of history. And for what Judaism has believed longer than that. We're in a strange time in our land and there are churches who are completely closed, there are churches who are completely open, and there are churches who are somewhere in between. And I was reading uh, an article from a paper up in the Kitchener-Waterloo area about the church up there. And they've stayed open, and we pray for that pastor and that congregation. But I was amazed at the outrage that came from the community on when they realized what this church believed. And what this church believed is exactly what the church has believed for 2,000 years. Just so that you know, the Church of Jesus Christ has believed and continues to believe that men and women are created in the image of God, that they are equal in value and worth in their persons, and yet they are distinct in their manhood and their womanhood. This should not shock anyone who's ever learned anything of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. And the church celebrates manhood and womanhood. A matter of fact, there are things that women can do that men cannot do, nor would they ever do. They bring forth life, and it should be celebrated. The church believes in the sanctity of marriage. This should not shock anyone. One man one woman for life. And we understand there's a fallen world we live in, that sin happens, that victims are made. But the truth is, the Bible makes it clear that any relationship outside of the safety of a covenant is sinful. Whether adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, that's what the church has believed and the true church continues to believe. The church believes in the sanctity of life. From the womb to the tomb, uh, the Greco-Roman world um, never protected the most valuable or vulnerable. Uh, infanticide was common, uh, and it wasn't looked down upon. If a child was born in the first century world, and that child was a female that you didn't want, or a male that you didn't want, or a deformity, the child was left on a heap to die from hypothermia. Others were buried in piles of manure, eaten by wild animals, or sacrificed in religious practices. The lucky ones were rescued to be slaves or prostitutes. And it was the Christian who was radical and countercultural that rescued these children from these heat piles. One saint named Callistus in the third century which his name literally means most beautiful, developed watch or life watches where Christian people would look for these infants and rescue them from certain death and care for these orphans. 
This is what the church has believed for 2,000 years. And just so you know, the church for 2,000 years has preached, there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. And we don't, we don't like to hear that. We don't like to discuss judgment. And I find it peculiar today, not that the world has a problem with this, but in our churches today, there are folks who want to completely ignore the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And Christ spoke wonderful words, words of love and compassion and hope. He did talk about heaven and the afterlife, but he spoke much more about judgment than he did about heaven. Listen to his words in Matthew 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Believer, do we understand why grace is so amazing this morning? Grace is so amazing because you and I were enemy combatants of the righteous, holy, eternal God of heaven. All we like sheep have gone astray, and not only gone astray, we have said, this God will not rule over us. We will create our own reality, our own way, and we will ignore every rule and law that he's given us to flourish. We will do it our own way. We have become rebels against a holy, righteous God. And this God is righteous, he is holy, and his wrath will be poured upon all sin, your sin and mine. And in that thought, there is no hope. And this is what makes grace amazing. That in that situation, when we all deserve the wrath of God for our sin, eternally separated from him, that Jesus Christ came. He lived the life we could not. He pleased the Father. And on the cross of Calvary, the wrath of God was poured on his head. He took my place. He took your place. He bled, he died, was buried, and then rose again to bring us back into relationship with the Father so that we could be saved. Christian, have we forgotten we have been saved from hell? We have been saved from destruction. We ran toward it. And yet by his amazing grace, he stepped in and saved us. We forget sometimes that others need this same salvation. It's a funny thing. We come rejoicing that we have been rescued, but do we ever give any thought or consideration to the living souls outside of this place who need to be rescued? Our family, our friends, our neighbors, and even our enemies. And so don't just read over this passage. Yep, to prod us, to encourage us, to move us on. We must stop and think about the true wrath and judgment of the God of heaven, which saved us in his kindness and longed to see others saved as well. Verse 32, he continues now. He's going to remind this group of people of the evidence of their faith. Verse 32, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them them that were so used. For 
You had compassion on me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Okay, so if judgment is a topic the church avoids, ignores, fast on its heels, is suffering. Is suffering. And the writer says, this group of people, you have suffered. You endured your own struggle of suffering. You were mocked. You were ridiculed. You lost your possessions. And you stood with others to encourage them while they were suffering. Um, They were in prison, and you were there. You were united with them. And in the world that we live, especially in our culture today, there is this um, aberrant view of, of Christianity when it comes to suffering that the church of Jesus Christ wants nothing to do with it. And it's so obvious that there's a, there's a phrase now that's tagged talking about Christianity in the West. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And what it is is a Christianity that's more like a self-help cult. This Christianity sees God as a cosmic therapist or butler that at any moment when we want health and wealth and prosperity, he's there for our whim, whatever we want, whatever we need. And this God doesn't care how we live, doesn't care how we act. He just wants us to be good people. It's like C.S. Lewis said, people view God as a grandfather in heaven that just wants everyone to have a good time, that a good time could be had by all. And this is where we find our church today. It's a problem when it comes to suffering. But not only that, this is a problem for a a large group of um, uh, a segment in our population, the millennials. A millennial is someone who's born from 1981 to 1996, between 25 and 40 years old today. And I'm not just picking on millennials this morning, but the the numbers are out and the facts are out about them. Um, I'm just going to use them as an example about this idea of suffering. But remember, it's not just millennials. Someone raised these kids. And we all have these tendencies. Millennials believe that unhappiness is slavery. Now, by and large, not everyone. But unhappiness is slavery. The biggest thing in life is to be comfortable and happy. As a matter of fact, there's a love for pleasure and a fear of discomfort. In 2019, the, the Wall Street Journal had a poll. Four out of five young Americans, which I'm sure it's the same for young Canadians, said that self-fulfillment is the key to a good life. Self-fulfillment. Be happy. No discomfort. Whatever you want, go for it. That's a problem, and it's a major problem. Why? Because suffering, whether you're red, black, yellow, or white, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, in North America or Africa, it makes no difference. All of us are going to suffer. That's the reality of the life we live. And Christianity has much to say about suffering. Much to say. There are letters written to churches that they were suffering. And we won't take the time to look at all of them, but let me give you one verse that might just maybe summarize this. And you can quote this verse. doesn't need to be on a screen. 2 Timothy 3.12. Yea, and all they that live godly in Christ Jesus might... shall suffer persecution. I'm fearful in the church of Jesus Christ today that we have become admirers of Christ and not followers of Christ. Admirers. We love being associated with Jesus 
as long as it's comfortable, as long as it's easy, as long as there's no trouble, pain, or tears. Kierkegaard says of this group of admirers, they never make true sacrifices, they always play it safe. And I think in our culture this morning, as we read about a church that's suffering, that is enduring, it's so foreign to us, because many of us have become admirers of Jesus Christ and not followers. Now listen, we are not to seek out suffering. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. But as 21st century Western believers, we must have a theology of suffering and be willing to embrace it, not be surprised, nor be bitter. And that idea must start now. And the choices we make in small things prepare us for the greater things. And there are small things in our life that we do suffer, right? But I guess the question is, how do we respond to this? knowing about suffering and how God uses it to purge us and, and to purify us. Um, how, how do you react when you're in a store or a restaurant and a clerk or a waitress is rude to you? I know that would never happen. But, but are you devastated by that? Are you all bent out of shape? Or when someone cuts you off in line at Tim Hortons or when you're supposed to, to, to merge, which, by the way, no one knows how to merge anymore in our society, Right? You get all bent out of shape, like, why is this happening to me? Or when someone intentionally hurts you, and by the way, people do intentionally hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. How do we respond to these things? For many believers, it destroys their life, it destroys their world. But these things grow bigger, and they are growing bigger. And if we don't have a handle this morning on what it means to suffer for Christ and are aware that it's coming, we will be in real trouble. What happens to our kids when the offer is to play on a sports team and make the team, and yet they play on Sunday? Now, for many of us, that doesn't cross our mind. Why? Because we are admirers of Jesus and not followers. Knowing if I make this decision, as I make that decision, I'm not playing on the team. What happens, believer, when there's a, a rocky patch in your marriage? And the world keeps on telling you, you deserve to be happy. That's what God wants for you. It's just your happiness. What do you do in that suffering? Do you endure? What about in relational loneliness? When you suffer by yourself and no one hears the Christ and you're tempted to compromise, do you know how to suffer patiently? For those who have teenagers. And all of a sudden now, they're not two. They're in their teens. And they're rebelling against everything that you believe. And the temptation then to have peace in your house is to acquiesce and give them everything that they want. Are you willing to suffer? Or when your coworker or your neighbor asks you what Christians really believe about these ethical issues. And you know when you tell the truth, at the very least, you'll be mocked, you'll be ridiculed, maybe lose a promotion or even a job. We have to quit saying the silly thing that the West says all the time, I will die for Jesus, when we do not even live for him when it becomes uncomfortable. Over this last week, I had time off because Pastor Dan preached. I finished two books, and one book was Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher. And he's interviewing people who've gone through the Iron Curtain or the Russian gulags. And he gives a story, a true story, of a group of 20 priests that they, 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 they um, tie together like in a dog sled team. 
They ran them through swamps for hours. And after several hours of doing this, these priests were standing there, and a KGB agent came up with a pistol and said, is God real, to the first one. And as he said yes, they blew his brains out. They were so close in proximity that the next guy behind and the next guy to his left or right was splattered. And time after time after time, for all 20 or 30 of those priests, everyone said yes. That's reality for those people. And we think, Lord, I will die for you. We will not die for him. We will not even suffer for him today. We will not even blush to speak his name. You say, how can they do this? How did these people in Hebrews do it? How have others did it? How can they do this? Look at verses 34 and 35 of our text. He says in 34, Knowing in yourself that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. He says, how do we endure suffering, any suffering, all suffering? We do it by remembering our eternal rewards. The reality of our life is not what we see and have right now. The reality of life is to come. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. And the substance that we're looking for lasts forever. Every substance on this planet is a vapor. All of it. Our cars, our homes, our boats, our cottages, our bank accounts, our very life, they're vapors. And suffering itself is a vapor. It is limited. The things that are last are the things that we are to look for. And so the writer says, we must endure. Look at verse number 36. For you have need of patience, you have need of endurance, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise of life eternal, of what God has for us. And now he quotes Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall, not, shall have no pleasure in him. And what the writer here is doing is interesting. He is not using that text, the just shall live by faith, that Paul uses in Romans 1, 17, Galatians 3, 11, as how a person becomes righteous by faith. He is stressing here that um, upon the faithfulness of the righteous people, that the righteous people are to live faithfully, in safety and in suffering. Our lives will be lived in accordance to our faith. That's why we have faith, we endure. We see that, we'll see that in a moment uh, next week in uh, chapter 11. He says, this is it. We are to faithfully endure. We have need of this. Now look at verse 39 as we've come to a close this morning. But we, again, now he puts himself again in the group of the saints, we are not of them that draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of our souls. He says, brother and sister, understanding of the judgment that is out there that we've been saved from, understanding that God has called us all to suffer and to endure, he says, we are not of those who draw back. We are not of those who shrink back. But we are those who believe and go forward. This morning, brother and sister in Christ, understand uh, who we are in Christ, our true identity. Listen. This morning, for those who have come to Christ, we are sons and daughters of the King of Heaven. We have been reconciled back to God. We have been placed in a household of faith. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Understand this morning that God has given all that we need 
to endure. We have his presence, that at any moment we can run into the presence of God. But not only that, we have his spirit that lives within us. This is the promise of Christ. We have his presence, we have his promises. What the Bible says about what is to come for the saint is true. If everything to this point has come to fruition and been the prophecies of the past have come to light, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt what's coming for us is true. And he has given us the people of God, the church. We can endure, we must endure, and we will. He's given us the church. Listen to what Ben Franklin said. Uh, if we do not hang together, we shall most assuredly hang separately. If there's ever time for the church of Jesus Christ to hang together, it is now. We can find strength to endure in this present crisis. Whether it's COVID, whether it's loneliness, um, whether it's pushback, from others, whether it's our health, our wealth, we can endure in this present crisis and whatever may lie ahead because of Jesus Christ. We are not those that draw back, but we are those who go forward and endure. And so, brother and sister in Christ this morning, understand what we've been saved from. Understand what we've been brought into as believers in Christ. And understand in a fallen world, suffering is coming. You don't have to look for it. I, I promise there's not anyone under the sound of my voice this morning that's not gone through suffering or struggles. They're there. And yet we can endure because of Christ. He has given us his presence. He has given us his promises. And we have his people to encourage one another. Brother, sister, we must endure. And by the grace of God, we can endure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you'd use it for your honor and glory this morning. Help us to be aware, fully aware of what we've been saved from. Give us the grace and strength to share that with others. And Lord, as we suffer in this life, no matter where it comes from, may we stand fast, stand true. May we understand that what we see in this world is a vapor, but may, may we look to that which is eternal. Oh God, help us as a church, help us as individuals to endure, to endure faithfully, to endure cheerfully, to embrace it, and to know that you are at work in the midst of all this. And so, God, I pray, help us to be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll conclude our service this morning with a special by Nico, and it is, oh, church arise. Thank you. <laughs>